We believe you have a story to share. For 2,000 years, humankind has believed in the power of story. In healthcare, we're finding ways to better heal those who are in front of us. Join us as we explore healing stories now. Well, I want to welcome everyone to another edition of Healing Stories podcast, uh, Everyday Miracles in Everyday Life. And it's my great honor uh, to be with Dr. Ed Peck, the Vice President of University Mission at John Carroll. And Ed, uh, as we do with all of our guests, uh, we begin with one simple question, and that is, Ed, could you tell us who you are? Sure. Really happy to be here with you, Martin. Um, who am I? Well, I... I really come to understand myself first and foremost as husband and father. Um, for a long time, I defined myself in terms of the work I did, but in the past um, decades now, I have come to understand myself in relationship to my wife, Sarah, and to our three children. So that's a big part of who I am as a husband and a father. And I also do this great work that I love. Um, I work in higher education and um, I have in, found a, a pathway in my life where I can help an institution realize its full identity in a way that I have come to understand my full identity through Ignatian spirituality. So as a mission officer, I understand my work to help the university appropriate the Ignatian tradition and apply it to everything that it's doing. And I get great joy out of that because it's, a, it's amazing to see the transformation of people and of an institution when we take our, when we, when we use the tools of Ignatian spirituality to um, understand the unique contribution that we can make to the world through this great spirituality working in higher education. And it's beautiful. You bring all of these notions of self, of husband, of father, but then also in a light of meaning and purpose and education being filled with opportunities. We know in this moment, uh, one of the great ways we could talk about today is just how is education going to build our society? and what it's gonna look like. Um, but we can't go, I imagine, into that unless we notice who we are, and that being uh, the roles of, of husband and father, uh, you, which you and I both share now uh, in a special way. Are you finding that this uh, way that you described Ignatian spirituality has something to offer uh, our world, especially in a time of pandemic, and as we see a rising increase in mental health issues? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, when I, when I think about the way Ignatian spirituality has helped me grow in my own life, um, it's helped me pay attention to my interior life that um, is inevitably pointing me outward to the world. Um, it's, you know, I've come to understand my own interiority, my hopes and my dreams, my shortcomings and my failures and my achievements and, and, um, and the person that God is calling me to be through the talents and gifts that I have and the things that I see need attention in the world. So I think that 
Ignatian spirituality can offer our world a sense of knowing ourselves and discerning what the world needs most, especially in places of greatest need, and then aligning our gifts and talents with what can happen, what can be done in the world to make the world a better place. Um, in religious terms, we, talk, we call it the kingdom of God, where uh, people are, um, where people work together to foster human thriving and work against all of those things that undermine human thriving at the individual and societal level and allow people to be realize their lives and to realize their dreams and to live out their full humanity, which I believe is the glory of God alive. And that human person, right? I mean, in the sense right. that it's somehow what we're in the midst of, even as we're being challenged to run up a hill or climb another mountain has so much to do with interiority. And some might not be comfortable with that kind of language or what that means. Um, how do you get there? How have you, over the years, you've been a spiritual director, you've had tremendous uh, uh, prestige with ethics and, and an understanding in, in university work. How do you get someone to just take a look interiorly? Well, it's... I think people have to want to go to take a look inside. And so I've always found that it's helpful to model what living an interior life means. So, because um, I think we can invite, I've always felt invited to a deeper way of living by encountering people who live life more deeply. Um, sometimes it's also, it's accompanied by a frustration with um, the shallowness in the superficiality in the world and so it, that creates a hunger and the hunger is, you know, that kind of hunger is, I think, satiated by running into, you know, the encounter of authentic people who are living um, life at a deeper level and they're uh, living a more reflective life. And so there's something inherently attractive to people who, are living life at a deeper level who seem to understand and um, feel more deeply in life. So I know we've probably, you know, we share some common friends who live, have lived that life at that level and they call us to that. So I guess in the work that I try to do is that I try to model that kind of living and be there to invite other people into looking inside and we don't have to use religious language. I think we can, you know, we can look at um, all kinds of, um, there are all kinds of ways that people get to know what they value and um, what means the most to them. And, and that a fulfilling, you know, we see that a fulfill, you know, people who live fulfilled lives are those people who live an interior life in one way or another, you know, they have a sense of who they are, what makes them tick, what motivates them and what they want to do in life. And this uh, person who I feel is even with us today was the great father Howard Gray. Sure. And just to think of him 
And I know a number of uh, our listeners who know him and that authenticity is still with us. And it's even in our conversation uh, and I can feel it right now. And there was a gift that he had and you have it too, Ed, is this notion of how you tell a story um, mm. and that stories add to your ethics. It adds to your interiority. And just how have you found over the years people are free to tell you who they are. Because if anything that I, we gained, I would say from Howard was that he was very comfortable with us sitting in front of him and telling him who we were. And I think our world is in desperate need of that even now more in the fears of COVID or the financial crisis or the killing of George Floyd, that how do I let other people know who I am? Uh, how, how do you become that authentic stealth uh, in this moment of time? It takes a lot of trust. And uh, again, I'll, I'll go back to this idea of modeling. And if we think about Howard, one of the great um, legacies that he left. And uh, when I talked after he passed, I got to talk to a number of people about um, what he meant to them. And you know, universally, people would eventually either start with or end up at, with the idea that he was um, very. He was he was able to communicate the love, the way he felt loved by God and by others. Um, in such a way, it was an authentic way. So he he could talk about the love of God because he felt it for himself. So he experienced it himself. And then he was able to be able to, he would, um, he could speak out of that experience and he would be vulnerable out of that and he would share his humanity. And so, and, and he would, and he paid attention to people's stories. And so anyone that knew Howard felt that really got to know him felt that he was a deeply loving person because he himself felt deeply loved by his parents, by his sister, by his family and his friends. And it was out of that sense of being loved that he was able to turn around and love other people. So how do we invite people to this? Um, I think it's a great, the, one of the great tools of a spiritual director and one of the great things that I learned in, the, uh, in my training and then certainly in the practice is um, that the work of the spiritual director is to facilitate someone telling their story by listening deeply. Um, many people believe that spiritual masters um, are supposed to tell us the meaning of life and what we're to do and, this, and, and how we're supposed to be in the world. But from an Ignatian approach, the spiritual director is supposed to sit back and let someone discover that for themselves and give voice to that for themselves by, by talking about what's going on inside, by talking about their deepest hopes and dreams and their frustrations and their fears and the places where they're unfree and, you know, to, and to tell their story. And, and often our stories are stories of, you know, um, 
wanting more, wanting healing, needing healing, wanting liberation, wanting to be freed from the things that keep us unfree. And so um, a good companion, a good someone who um, will help us tell our story is someone who can sit back and ask the kind of questions that allow us to speak about what's going on inside. And the companion guide, the spiritual director, will just play that back and say, this is what I hear you saying, or I notice this pattern. I see this. These are the characters in your story. These seem to be the main characters. Um, these seem to be the plot twists. Uh, this is the, these are the recurring themes. Could you tell me more about that? So I think we can, uh, you know, the, we can be good companion guides to people when we are willing to get out of the way and be clear about that the process is a process of allowing someone to tell their story and just ask questions that open-ended questions that allow people to give voice to that, which they need to say inside. So this aspect of facilitating someone's story is a tremendous privilege. And mm -hmm. When we look at medicine and we look at education and these ways that people could tell their story and, mm -hmm. and I could be healed by that, cause us then to be surrounded by other people, as you're saying, who are comfortable at telling their story. And, and if that's not the case, then I think there's empty churches, empty classrooms, and certainly empty clinics. Um, and even now in this moment of time, how to get people um, to a place of trust is very hard, um, mm -hmm. especially as we fear going outside of our own homes. Um, are you seeing that this kind of uh, hesitation to leave home, hesitation to encounter physically uh, will have some ramifications in terms of our ability to facilitate our own stories? I don't think so because the need to tell our story and to have contact is so deep that we seek it out in alternate ways. So even though none of us would ever want to repeat this year, if we look back and there's a resiliency to the human spirit that's been exhibited through this year and, you know, not only have, teachers continue to teach after pivoting on a dime. Um, you know, certainly, you know, healthcare workers have, have, you know, they've been on the front lines and they've kept doing and doing, but, you know, people that weren't frontline workers, but who needed to provide healing for others, they start with telemedicine and zoom calls and, you know, there, and um, <clears throat> people that needed to meet with one another you know, turned to the internet and to turn to Zoom and to things like that. And so we've done that because we've needed to be connected with one another. So um, it makes it hard. You know, it's it certainly would be better to be in person with one another. But I have, an you know, just an interesting story is um, one of my spiritual directees comes to see me once a month from... 45 minutes away. And when we first started, um, when we were first paired up by uh, someone who thought we would be a good um, match for one another, I said, 
you know, if you, if, if you want, we can try to meet halfway. It's a long way to come. And, you know, there, you know, I, and he's and so we talked about that a little bit and then he said, or we could just, you know, we could do this over, you know, this was, I think pre-Zoom, it was faced, it was a couple of years ago. So I said, well, we could do this over FaceTime or, or we could do this on the phone. And he was adamant about meeting in person. And so he wanted to meet in person. So he said, I don't, I don't care. You know, we'll, I'll drive the 45 minutes. I don't want to impose on you. So we did that. And, but when Zoom came, you know, and this has been a very productive life-giving relationship and he has definitely told me his story and it's been a story of great healing um, and, you know, um, discovery of his vocation and how he can contribute. And, and he's really come to life through this relationship. And yeah, and I would say because of the grace of God, because of the working of the Holy Spirit, um, and on a, and, and without even batting an eyelash, when COVID hit, we couldn't be out one about, he said, well, let's meet on Zoom. And, it was it was a it was a seamless transition because we had this relationship already started, and it's just one example of. And I know lots of directors are seeing people, lots of teachers are seeing people, people health compromised, um, who can't get out of their home are using this technology to stay connected, because people want to be connected. So I think that, um, you know, there is a there is a, a hesitancy on the one hand. But there's also this deep desire for connection. And I think about groups, you know, groups of people that, you know, um, I would normally get together with once a year. Um, we couldn't do that this year, but we got together on Zoom uh, three times as often. And there were twice as many people because it was easier. Wasn't the, it wasn't the same, but it was different. In that connection, though, you're sanguine to say is still there. The desire yes. is there. So let's not be um, unaware or inattentive to that interiority of wanting to connect. And right. now maybe there is a freshness or a pure, and I would uh, just a, a way of imagination to think mm -hmm. how we connect. And it could be shorter. Um, it could also be um, in the comfort of our own homes, which we're doing now this evening. And my son, Simon, just walked in with his Spider-Man costume as we were talking. And I was, I was just thinking, how is it that maybe we could allow the world to see us in that community now more so? Um, and even as in, in healthcare, uh, how your home becomes your place of healing, how in education, your home could facilitate your ability to come to know more. Are you seeing some ways that we're at a greater sense now of learning, a greater sense of, of connection, just as you have said? Because I think people are wondering what will education look like if we do this, is Zooming uh, or this method uh, and, and not have the, the dorm or have all of the things that we know is what the college, college used to be. Mm -hmm. what, what are some of your thinkings on that? Well, there's a, there are many different kinds of learning that happen in life, so, you know, certainly through a university that, and I would say only some of them can be facilitated through this kind of, this kind of connection. Um, there's, because we're, you know, we're mind, body, and spirit, 
we there's part of us there's a physical dimension to the con- the contact that we need to develop into um, whole persons, and so there is this. I, I see it with, among my students right now is there's this deep desire to be connected to one another, to be in an environment that um, where people can explore who they are, take risks, meet new people, have their um, their horizons broadened through engagement with people who are different from themselves. And so, you know, when I think about, you know, what is education going to be like, um, we'll probably have, we'll become more efficient and we'll be, we'll use technology to, to meet our goals in different ways, but there'll be a, we need to retain that human element and that sense of connection and being with one another in community that you can only achieve um, fully when you're together. So uh, I think it will be different. I mean, I think we will, there's there's, um, a a humanizing capacity that's been happening through this. So um, I think I've noticed in my, my, many of my Zoom meetings that people are more themselves Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, you know, the let you know people are um, dress a little bit more informally. Maybe I've seen a, f- a lot fewer ties <laughs> in the past seven months, and at all kinds of levels of the organization. And so, and when and there is something to be you know to seeing someone in their home that makes things that kind of demythologizes, I think, and humanizes uh, all at the same time. So um, I, one of the, back in March when I was teaching a class, um, it was really interesting to see where the kids, the students were learning from. And some of them you could tell had, you know, calm environments where they could really be um, attentive to their work, but other people you could see are struggling trying to carve out a little bit of space for their work. Um, but I found it was important to be able to, to let people see my home and my environment. So I didn't, you know, I have this on now for, uh, I have a virtual background of Cleveland. Um, but and that's for your benefit, Martin. But I normally would just let people see my home and to see the space that I worked in. And, um, and so I found that it was, I was able to have a lot more, um, I think, open dialogue with my students. I think there's, you know, I was, um, I was a little bit more. Um, I like to think I'm approachable anyway, but this was even more so, you know, when you're coming from home. And I do appreciate the Cleveland connection is I know my mother will as she listens to this as well. Um, <laughs> she's always your biggest fan on this. But the whole aspect of what we're talking about, too, has to do with those who haven't had as much um, opportunity, those who live on the margins. Yes. And I know that you had talked to me about that need for justice in this period of time and how we are attentive to those who don't have the means, just as you said. I mean, those who are juggling four things at home. And we know even in um, the healthcare areas that are most hit by COVID, they have been in our poor communities. 
Mm-hmm. And those who have six, seven people living in their homes together who are out working every single day. And even within education, as they do the studies of the testing that comes back, are, are there ways that we can really um, listen to those people on the margins? Or, or how are you helping, as I know you always do, to give them their voice, uh, to bring those margins to the center? Yeah, that's that's a um, really that's that we were talking about this the other day, and I think I, I'm glad that we have turned to this because as I think about what's happening in society and certain, and then how uh, how higher education and I think healthcare have to respond, um, I, we're we're experiencing a crisis in our society, and things are coming to a head in many different ways. And, um, and as, as higher, as people working in higher education, we're asking ourselves, even though we're not on campus and we're learning remotely and our community is not back together, how are we going to be prepared to accompany our students, especially our students of color, um, who are experiencing this, um, you know, all of the pain and suffering that's happening in our country. Um, how can we be present to those people whose lives have been ripped apart because of um, the inequities in our system, in our in our um, economic and social systems with regard to, uh, that, that have been revealed in the, through this COVID crisis, whether it's in um, food insecurity, access to healthcare, um, Exposure, you know, ability to isolate oneself from from the virus um, as much as possible. So all these inequities. So in in higher education, we're asking ourselves how can we be how can we prepare ourselves to listen to our students and to listen to the cries of the of those people who have been marginalized and who are suffering and. So we, we're starting to ask ourselves, how can we become an anti-racist organization? How can we commit ourselves to honestly confront the ways that we have been part of the problem, uh, part of the system that um, perpetuates the inequities um, that people are experiencing in society? And what can we do as an institution? And a lot of the work is involves putting people who have been, who, who we have put at the margins of society to actually find ways to put them in the center and to listen to their experience and listen to their story non-defensively from a place of awareness about our responsibility for um, perpetuating systems, knowingly or unknowingly, that have con- laid, that have been exploitative, and that have been oppressive. Mm-hmm. So um, it's and and part of that means we have to we have to step back and listen and. Um, listen to the stories that are being told to us, listen to the realities of the people that are out there without putting the burden of fixing things on the people telling the story. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's hard enough for them to tell their story again and again and again. And we have to really commit ourselves to listening, but then also to acting to repair. So um, one of the latest, um, you know, one of the latest commitments of the Society of Jesus that sponsors John Carroll and other Jesuit schools, of course, and ministries is the commitment to accompany those who are on the margins of society in a ministry of reconciliation and justice. So, and for me, that means we need to be, we need to listen to the stories of those people who we have collectively put on the margins of society and recognize our responsibility for um, the, the role that we have played historically and, and, and continue to play now in their marginalization and in their oppression and say, what do we need to do? What is our obligation in light of that? Which is really hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard and it's the right work. And, and you're uh, doing it and also championing this notion of what is it to be a reconciler? And that's, I feel, what has become the theme of this healing stories that we've mm-hmm. talked about. Uh, what does a reconciler look like? Uh, how does, what kind of tone do they use? Uh, what way do they create a, a responsibility for the spirit they bring in the room? And, and not judging them, nor allowing the person who's telling the story to, to make them feel they have to fix it. Um, and, and that's a that's a real great moment here, Ed. That I think you're asking us to consider uh, both in medicine, within healthcare, uh, with, uh, the the aspect of education. Could it become a place of reconciliation? I think so. And I w- just want to correct you not um, not out of a false sense of humility, but I'm not doing it. I'm learning that I need to do it, and I'm committing to doing it. Um, we there's a phrase that we used on. Um, on campus as we're doing, we're, we kind of, we, there's a group of us committing to this work and we kind of talked about us being aspiring anti-racists. And, and cause you know, it's easy to say it's much harder to do. So I don't want to leave the impression that I have done this work. It's a lifetime of work um, and it's ongoing work. Um, but as far as being, you know, what does it mean to reconcile? First of all, I think that, you know, um, anyone involved in the work needs to, to realize that we, even as a reconciler, we come from a place of ourselves needing reconciliation. You know, we come as broken people who are in need of healing ourselves. And, um, and I think we have to have a vision of wholeness and we have to have an imagination that things can be better. And, and so therefore we need hope. So I think that the work of reconciliation um, has to include a sense of hope that things can be better and that they must be better. There also, there's this vision of, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, the sense of human thriving, you know, that, that um, the work of reconciliation demands that we have a, a vision of human thriving in a sense that it doesn't that it things don't have to be the, the way they are right now broken mm-hmm. that 
there is um, that in the spirit of hope, we can move together toward, we're never going to reach it, but we're going to, we can move toward healing and wholeness. And it's that journey together that is life-giving. And so um, the work of reconciliation is um, the work of trying to, of working together um, to heal and repair um, beginning with the things that are in our control and the things that we bear responsibility for. So, and Ed, I want to thank you because what you've given us tonight is a notion that we can control some of those things. And it takes the interior work as well as the aspect of listening to those who have been on the margins and trying to bring them to the center. If people wanted to get a hold of you or they just said, I, I got to meet this guy and I drive two hours to see him, uh, how would they go about that? Um, how I, I assume you your email and stuff uh, at John Carroll University is an accessible place. Sure. it's uh, You can probably put it in the... the podcast um, um, information, but it's epec at jcu.edu. And I'd be certainly happy to, to um, hear from anyone that would like to share some ideas or ask some questions. And, you know, as I think about the important work that you're doing with this, Martin, is I think that um, our, our healthcare workers, um, you know, who are so so important um you know medicine can you know the more technical it gets and the more automated it gets the human piece can be taken out and i think that good healthcare workers um across the spectrum can be those people who are invite who are human you know who have a sense of you know, slowing down. I think about our pediatrician, um, you know, they, we love the practice because they, no matter how busy they are and they are very busy, they always stop. I think they're, they're trained by the the, the lead, um, the, the man who's practiced it is to really stop and listen to people and to see how they're doing. And so, and the best doctors I've ever had, the best nurses I've had are those people who, are slow down enough and they can ask how are you doing and what, what what brings you here today and what you know what do you need from us and um you know if i think about that to the kind of at the macro level um we need to look at all of the woundedness and the brokenness that the covid um, pandemic has and that the racial unrest in our society have uh, demonstrated for us, and they're very linked. You know, they they they, they show the, the pressure points of our system, of our society, and so if we want to heal that, then we have to kind of do the analogous move of slowing down, putting our hand on the person who needs to tell their story, to be with them, and say what is this like what has this been like for you um tell me your story and i and then then there needs to be this sense of what role have i played in it you know what privileges do i have that um have contributed to the system 
that is keeping that is harming you so it's a great hope and it's a great message and yes. I, I, I thank you for being with us ed and uh as always uh the cleveland light even comes through here in uh socal so uh thanks right. and uh we'll we'll keep the touch as we go along ed okay well it's a pleasure I, I mean, i'm looking forward to diving deeper into the podcast myself so it's really a great great ministry that you're working on martin so Thanks, good luck with it you take care time heals all wounds join us for our next episode of healing stories